Hello and welcome to the Advisory Board's Weekly Briefing, Episode 22. This is a big deal. I'm your host, Dan Diamond, editor of The Daily Briefing, writer for Vox and Forbes. Today we'll break down the budget deal and what it means for healthcare. Then we'll be joined by a special guest, Ann Philippic, the head of Enroll America, to discuss how open enrollment is going under the Affordable Care Act. And we'll wrap up, as usual, with our electives. That fun story or study or anecdote that we're dying to share with you as well. And we're recording this on the verge of Star Wars opening. I'm I'm not sure if anyone is actually going to be listening to our podcast as the Death Star of that movie inches over and eclipses everything in popular culture. As a non-Star Wars fan, I keep seeing people post on Facebook, only one more day, only two more days, and I keep wondering, what are they talking about? And now I just realize they're talking about Star Wars. I'm going to go on a social media blackout until I can see the movie next week. The only thing I might do is go on to post a link to this episode. Rob, do you watch Star Wars? I'm not a big Star Wars fan. <laughs> I'm not uh, although one day I think I'm going to sit down and just power through them. Makes sense. Probably not this week, though. So the, those voices you heard, my my co-panelists, first, the Princess Leia of our podcast, <laughs> Rivka Friedman, head <laughs> of the Medical Group Strategy Council. Hi, Dan. I don't know that my voice is living up to Princess Leia standards today. I'm a little bit hoarse, getting over a cold. But you have but such royal bearing. Here. Thank you. And And my fellow panelist and the Luke Skywalker... You don't have a good analogy, do you? No, well, not the Darth Vader. I, I'm not really sure where you fall, though, on the on the Star Wars spectrum. That's okay. Well, good, good to be here. Dan, did you take my pre-show banter and make it into the title again today? <laughs> if I've learned anything on this podcast, it's the worse the pun, the higher the likelihood it'll make the final cut. You know, that was a good title. Yeah, I, well, it's, it's accurate. I mean, we could have gone with the other pre-show banter when we were explaining mansplain <laughs> to you, but I thought we could leave that out of the, the final recording. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> I've just mansplained. And explaining to you. Um, some housekeeping before we get into today's topics. First, as many listeners know, kind of a sad update. I'll be joining Politico in the new year. And I know there have been questions on what will happen to the podcast. We will have an update for you soon. Second, before the year ends, we're going to try something we've been dying to do since we launched the weekly briefing. Answer your questions on air. So if you've got questions, you can email us, podcast at advisory.com. Or you can ring directly at 202-266-5618. I wish we had like a 1-800 number. Is that your cell phone, Dan? (laughs) (laughs) It's Dan's office line. It's my office line, which is going to be converted into a uh, A voicemail box. That's right. And the best voicemails that we get, we will try and play them on the air. Just try and do that by Monday, December 21st. And if folks have questions on Twitter and aren't going to call in, can they share them via Twitter? I, I think so. And we'll happily read those too. I don't know about you guys. I'm incredibly excited to have this segment next time. So please send us your questions, that burning healthcare question uh, or thing about the podcast you've been wanting to ask. Now's your shot. Or or which Star Wars person Rob most accurately matches up to? Chewbacca? No, that's just just mean. (laughs) He's loyal and much loved. Everyone loves Chewbacca. For links on anything that we talk about, you can visit advisory.com slash podcast. You can follow us on Twitter as Rivka alluded to, weekly underscore briefing, and find us on iTunes as well. Okay, topic number one. Normally, we record the podcast on Tuesday, but this week we bumped it to Wednesday. And the upshot of that delay is that we can talk about the budget deal, which slipped in even as the Republican debate was dominating the political landscape. Under the $1.1 trillion budget deal, the government would be funded through September of next year, avoiding a shutdown in the near term. There are many provisions as part of this giant omnibus bill. 
Rivka, I'm, I'm going to start with you. What is in the bill that matters for healthcare? Sure. So as I understand it, three big things that the bill does that we here care about. First is that the bill, and probably most most important, the thing we've been tracking the closest, is that the bill delays the implementation of the so-called Cadillac tax for two years. And we'll talk about that more, I trust, in a moment. Second is that the medical device tax is also going to be delayed for two years. Third is that the uh, the bill suspends the law's health insurance tax for a year. And then actually there's one more, which is that the law extends a measure that prevents the government from shifting funds to pay for the ACA's risk corridor program. Now, I'll confess, I know very little about that last one. But I think the three that have been making the most news are the three delays of taxes, one for one year and two for two. And in particular, the delay to the Cadillac tax. Exactly. I know we've talked about that in past episodes, but just as a reminder, that was a 40% excise tax on health benefits that exceed a certain amount. Uh, And the idea is that was supposed to be essentially a line in the sand that would keep employers' health costs from escalating year after year as, as they always have and would really be the burning platform for employers to start getting more aggressive about their, their health spending. Now, one of the things that I find really interesting, and there have been rumors about this across the past few months um, about this potential delay, is that this is one of the few issues where we see folks on both sides of the aisle and, and both big business and labor uniformly opposed to the policy. I once joked, I'm not sure who apart from the president liked the Cadillac tax, and I got reminded very quickly that a lot of economists do. Yeah, and OMB. OMB also likes the Cadillac tax. Remember all of the fuss over whether the Affordable Care Act was actually going to reduce health care mm-hmm. spending? One of the measures that folks pointed to was the Cadillac tax. And you're right, Rob. A few years ago, this was seen as non-negotiable. Interesting to see the arc of history and all of the predictions that Congress would not follow through with some of the most painful measures of the ACA seem to be coming to pass. Yeah, and not for nothing, this effort to repeal the Cadillac tax or delay it as the case came through seems to have been led by Democrats. There was a story in the Huffington Post a week ago from John Cohn and Jeff Young that Democrats are the ones dealing the biggest blow to the Affordable Care Act so far for all of the fuss in Congress over trying to repeal the law or strike parts of it down. You're right, Riv. This is something that the Democrats are running with. Right. I think that's one irony, which is that the Democrats are the ones that have dealt the biggest blow to Obamacare thus far. But the second irony is that everyone on both sides of the aisle has been talking big talk about needing to be responsible about spending, about wanting the ACA to reduce overall costs. And I think there's a fair amount of evidence that delaying and or repealing the Cadillac tax does just the opposite. Can we try to unpack some of that? Sure. Well, it's important to think about the purpose behind the Cadillac tax. It was to encourage employers to get more aggressive about about addressing their health spending costs and to get them to think about changing benefit design, um, about potentially working with providers differently, to fundamentally change how they purchase health care. Okay. So, Dan, Lauren Adler seems to have been tracking this really closely, and I was alerted to all of the work that Adler is doing through you and your Twitter feed. Um, I've been I've been following it for some time, partially because you've been retweeting it. But some of the statistics that he cited include that the fact that if the Cadillac tax were re- repealed, as I understand it, national health expenditures would go up by forty to sixty billion dollars per year. Wages would go down by forty five billion dollars a year, and I know that's per- in particular been the source of some debate. And 20-year deficits would go up by $700 billion. Those are some big numbers. And when you weigh those numbers, and there are others where those came from, against the fact that we've been hearing a lot from, again, both Democrats and Republicans about wanting to rein in 
healthcare spending and wanting to make sure that we're being fiscally responsible. It's really interesting that the Cadillac tax actually did get delayed. Lauren's organization, the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, note the responsible for the budget part, is very upset about Mm -hmm. these measures because all of those points will conceivably come to pass. Very few people in Washington expect that the two-year delay on the Cadillac tax is anything but a prelude to the ultimate Repeal. dropping of it. Mm-hmm. Well, and, or it becomes something like the SGR that got repealed, or excuse me, that got delayed year after year. Great point. And, and just a bargaining chip that can be used to extract concessions from lobbyists or whoever else. What's very interesting to me, having tracked the creation of the Affordable Care Act, and you guys probably remember this too, think about all of those people who were around the table drafting the law, the hospital associations, the insurance industry, and the unions too. And each one of those groups, for the most part, was getting something from the ACA, more paying customers if you're a hospital, just more customers if Mm -hmm. you're an insurance, if, if you're an insurer. But the unions, it was always a little mysterious what they were going to get because historically, if you're a member of a union, one of the biggest benefits that a union could get you was health insurance. Exactly. And if everyone can have access to health insurance, then what is the union going to get you instead? Well, maybe better health insurance. And the Cadillac tax directly goes after that. Well, so as I think about this news, it's hard for me not to think about it in partly from a, a provider's perspective and think, wait a minute, how come all these other provisions are getting delayed or potentially repealed um, except for our payment cuts, our pay for performance? <laughs> so it seems like as you, as you think about the gives and the gets, the hospitals are still facing a lot of the the gives, the things that they had to, to sacrifice to support the ACA. Interesting. Yeah, that's a really astute point. I mean, in, in some respects, the macro political story here to me is that it shows unions still have more muscle than perhaps we, we thought they would. Oh, just to... I don't think that the fact that the Cadillac tax was delayed or repealed has anything to do with union muscle. I think it has to do with employers being really scared about hitting that tax and probably employers who really thought they would never hit that tax suddenly realizing not only are we going to hit it, we're going to hit it soon. So employers certainly have clout. I'm not sure this says much about the unions. One of the things that I find a little bit ironic here is this doesn't mean that employers' health costs are any lower. It just means they're not going to suddenly get that much higher because they'd also be paying a tax on top of the health benefits. So if I think from an employer's perspective, they're still grappling with health care costs that are going up year after year and the fact that that's a growing part of their budget. Well, actually, I want to push you on this, Rob. My understanding was that employers were already starting to position to avoid hitting the Cadillac tax, and that might be one of the reasons why spending has been depressed Mm. over the past couple years. Well, yes and no. So we have seen employers' health spending at an all-time low. It's going up less than 4% a year, um, which, again, it's a record low. But the problem is when you take current spending levels and roll the film forward, they were still increasingly going to be hitting the Cadillac tax, even if not in 2018. Look out three, four, five years and more and more each year. So here's the sort of small question that I think has bigger implications. Do we think that the average employer was thinking about the Cadillac tax intensively in, say, 2014? Because we saw the spending curve dip or or bend at that point. And I don't think it's fair to say that that's because they were worried about hitting the, the Cadillac tax. It's a great question. As we've looked at surveys of employers and how they are rethinking their health benefits, um, one area we spent a lot of time looking is at the shift to private exchanges. Mm-hmm. I know we've talked about that plenty of episodes ago. Um, And as we looked at surveys of the motivation behind the move to private exchanges, avoiding the Cadillac tax was actually relatively low on the list. Right, which means that they were 
they were either bending the cost curve more organically just because of things that they were doing or putting in place, or they were bending it for other reasons. Well, and if you ask economists why they might favor the Cadillac tax, they'll say, if I understand correctly at least, it's because the current tax structure rewards employers for shifting compensation to health insurance rather than direct wages because of the tax break. Right. right. There's no downward pressure on health insurance the same way there would be on wage growth. I think their summary would be that as healthcare costs continue to go up and up each year, it's actually stealing our salaries. Right. I mean, I'm not so sure that the evidence that that actually does happen. In other words, that if the cost of benefits goes down, we see the impact on wages. I'm not so sure that there's enough evidence to say for sure that that either has happened or would happen. But it's the economic theoretical argument. Yeah. So we've talked a fair amount now about the Cadillac tax. Pulling back for a second, thinking about that medical device tax, for instance, or even the fact that Congress simultaneously enacted a big budget increase for the NIH, uh, steering them $2 billion more, which is one of the biggest increases that that agency has gotten in over a, a decade. Yeah, over a decade. Do we think that these changes ultimately help the healthcare industry mm. or hurt the industry? I mean, certainly the increase in NIH funding is a guaranteed win. Obviously, I, I think it is fair to say it is an unequivocally good thing to have more money go toward research. And I, th I think if you talk to anybody who's close to NIH, they would say that that funding is both crucial and also has not been sufficient in years past. I do wonder, though, if it will slow down some of the transformation in the private sector without employers who are you know, one of the dominant sources of healthcare spending in the non-Medicare population if they don't have such a burning platform under them anymore. Just confirming, you're talking about the Cadillac tax. Exactly. Dan, going back to the medical device tax for a moment, and, and I'm by no means an expert on medical device issues or the medical device tax, but as we've had conversations in the past few years about it, I think our sense was that that tax would end up increasing medical device costs, and a lot of that would end up getting passed along to providers. Um, so there's actually an interesting benefit to hospitals, health systems, um, who might not see those increases, uh, at least immediately as that gets delayed. Well, so let me take your thought experiment and run with it. I, the answer to, is this a good thing for the system? I think we tend to think about that in a few ways. The first is, does this improve the quality of healthcare delivered to Americans? Does it Improve the access to health care and health insurance. That's right. Improve the access to health coverage and health care. Potentially, does it reduce costs? Although not everybody would say that is an unequivocally good thing to have lower cost health care. I think we all agree that higher quality, more access, lower cost is sort of the triple aim. Though, though as Uwe Reinhardt, the economist from Princeton, has said, you know, getting rid of a dollar in health care is a dollar out of somebody's pocket. So mm. as usual, it depends on who you're asking. Are these taxes good? Are they bad? Who's benefiting at the end of the day? very different perspectives. There is one more question I had for you two, which ties back to a conversation we had last week on gun violence and research. There had been considerable momentum to include in the omnibus, which is what this is all called, um, a lifting of the restrictions on whether CDC could conduct research into gun violence. That measure failed. Does Are we that really surprised that it failed? I mean, I think the no, Democrats I'm, I'm are not. right, right. I'm it's not it's unfortunate, but yeah. it it's not surprising. Unfortunately, having tracked and reported on the budget process over the years, Rob alluded to the SGR fix every year. It does seem like there can be these incremental movements where you build consensus, you try to win support for your cause, and if it fails, then you've hopefully advanced the ball 
down. So even though the gun violence change didn't go through, it certainly felt like there was a lot more momentum this year than mm-hmm. any year I can remember, which sets things up for future negotiations. Hopefully. All right, let's leave it there. For links on anything that we talk about today, you can visit advisory.com slash podcast. You can email us at podcast at advisory.com and find us on Twitter at weekly underscore briefing. Topic two, the third open enrollment period for the Affordable Care Act exchanges is underway, and we're recording our podcast on Wednesday, which means the deadline for signing up for coverage that takes effect on January 1st is right around the corner. Joining us to understand how open enrollment is going, Anne Philippic, the head of Enroll America, and also Modern Healthcare has named you one of the most influential people in healthcare. You are the first member of that list to join our podcast. Thank Thanks for joining us. <laughs> Thanks I, very much. I, I'm looking forward to seeing your influence in action <laughs> as you influence our conversation. I will try to demonstrate it, Dan. We have lots of questions for you about how open enrollment is going, but it might be helpful first and to just understand what is Enroll America? Sure. Uh, It's a great question. Uh, Enroll America is a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that was basically created after the passage of the ACA with the recognition of there was an opportunity, is an opportunity for millions of Americans to gain health coverage, but no one was going to do it if they didn't know it was available to them. So it's our entire focus is on maximizing the number of people who enroll in and retain their coverage. And we do that through a variety of ways, including our Get Covered America campaign, which is our consumer-facing work um, to have a presence in communities and get the word out through some, you know, tactics that are similar to marketing campaigns or electoral campaigns. Um, But that's really one piece of the the puzzle of the work that we do. And and you have a background working on political campaigns before going into getting people to enroll in health coverage. That's true. Actually, my background is not so much in healthcare; It is in organizing, uh, including electoral campaigns. And I I worked for um, Barack Obama in 07 and 08. As part of Enroll America's work, do you all work with smaller local or community-based organizations, or is most of your work sort of centralized, even if it ends up happening in local areas? Actually, a a huge part of our work is is empowering and working with those local organizations. So um, at this point, we work actually with over 6,800 organizations across the country, which range from hospitals to faith leaders to, you know, local community health centers, um, libraries, and community colleges. Um, And I really think of our work as we're sort of the national nerve center that's trying to support them and to identify best practices, um, put out um, resources for them to use. But the work really happens on the local level. So we do have staff on the ground locally to do this work, but they're more supporting, in a lot of ways, supporting those organizations that have direct reach to the uninsured. So... You all started right after the passage of the ACA, and your, as you said, your, your primary effort is to get more folks covered. We've been talking a lot about how the third year of open enrollment may in some ways be the hardest because you're trying to get enrolled people who have had the opportunity to enroll two previous times and haven't taken us, America, up on it, right? So mm-hmm. I'm curious from a sort of strategy and planning perspective, which you clearly have, what what are the things that you anticipated would be the hardest about this third year, and how have you tried to tackle those in your 
uh, enrollment strategy. Sure. So there are some real opportunities that come three years in. You know, this isn't so brand new to people. It's more likely that more people are aware. Um, when we started this work, I, I started at Enroll in January of 2013. And the, the research was staggering that like nine out of 10 people had no clue this was coming that October. So we're at a place now that they're, um, that people are generally aware. Um, but uh, but as you know, a lot of that, you know, people sort of refer to the low-hanging fruit has already been picked. Um, and so that's – but that's something we've done a lot of research on, you know, because the question is, is that true? You know, do – for those that remain uninsured, why are they uninsured? And to me, the question is, if, if, if it was true that people – those that hadn't taken action, the reason was because they didn't want health coverage – we would be in a world of trouble. You know, there wouldn't be much more progress we could make. However, what you see is that actually the majority of the remaining uninsured say they want they want health coverage. So then the question is, why haven't they enrolled? And then you look at the barriers that have prevented that. And so much of our program at this point is to not be as big as possible. It's to be more sophisticated and to try to address those barriers. So that's, at this point, what a lot of the program is about. Um, and an example I will give is um, we know that a lot of people fa- have found in the past as, as much as the, the uh, process has improved and been made so much easier, it's still, it's still a lot to choose a health plan. I find it overwhelming at times when I go through, you know, start with a new employer. And, uh, and especially when people, when it was hard to sort of dig beyond the premium level and really understand based on, you know, my needs and my usage, what is the best deal for me? Um, and so, you know, you see on healthcare.gov a tool that is much more sophisticated in giving that full picture. We at Enroll America have developed a similar tool called the Plan Explorer that is, again, it's about looking at those barriers, what's what's making this hard for consumers, and how can we support them? And I think that's a lot of what we're all trying to address at this point in the game. So given that consumers now have more tools to make a more personalized choice, do you find that the number of repeat customers that are changing plans is going up each year. I think one of the things that we found most interesting is how fluid of a marketplace this is, especially compared to other insurance markets. Well, I'd say we're a little too early to, to make those comparisons at this point. You know, obviously last year was the first time the renewal population was shopping around and we are now in the third enrollment period. I will say that if you look at some of the stats that are out so far in terms of people that have taken action, you are seeing more people actively renew their coverage at this point in the game than we were at a similar point last year. Um, so that is good progress. But I, I do think it's, it's a little too early to say exactly what we will see in this enrollment period. But I do think we are on the trend of, uh, of that direction. So recognizing that it's too early to give a, a full report on this year, now that we're six weeks in, can you at least bring us up to speed with the progress so far and, and where you see needing to go between now and the end of open enrollment? Sure. Um, so, you know, it's actually, you know, we are recording this on December 16th um, and, and a fascinating moment because uh, we have just passed what was the original mm-hmm. deadline, December 15th, for January 1st coverage. And, um, you know, we, we don't yet have exact numbers of what has come out, what's what's occurred over the last few days. We do know that there's been uh, unprecedented demand, I believe is the phrase that uh, CMS used. And because of that, um, have extended the deadline until uh, midnight on December 17th. Um, we also, just this afternoon, got the latest snapshot of numbers through December 12th. So um, that is sort of week six of open enrollment, which gets us to four point, right around 
around 4.1 million Americans um, and 1.3 million of them in the past week alone. I, I was at a meeting with the, some HHS and CMS officials on Monday night, and I will tell you they were very happy <laughs> uh, with what they were seeing. And and uh, sort of the phrases that were used was, um, you know, demand on a level that has never been seen, not just in this enrollment period, but um, at any point in right. the last three years. Um, and also just acknowledging that sort of on the level that no one really thought was possible in the third enrollment mm. period. So we don't have the exact numbers, but we know we're we're seeing some really big things happening in just the last couple of days. So you talked a little bit about the barriers that we expect customers trying to enroll this year might face, one of them being the ability or previous barriers that I guess have been knocked down now, one of them being the ability to shop based on a variety of criteria, which both Enroll America and healthcare.gov have tried to solve for consumers who are shopping. I'm curious if you can talk about what some of the other barriers to attaining coverage might be for consumers who are shopping this year for the first time or who are potentially buying this year for Mm -hmm. the first time. Well, one of the big things, and and this is, I'd say, true of the general population, but we have found is particularly true of the remaining uninsured, is a desire for one-on-one in-person assistance. So we talk a lot about healthcare.gov, and it is and has had great improvements and is now a really great website um, that I do think is quite user-friendly. But for a lot of people that haven't had health coverage, especially if you look at some specific populations like the Latino population, there is a real desire to not just go to a website. Um, And even as great as those tools now are becoming, they really want to sit down and talk to a person. Um, And and so there are, you know, the navigators and the certified application counselors and all the different different names for people that are there to help. Um, So one is making sure there is enough of a presence community by community to meet that need. But the other thing that is, I think, sometimes lost is it doesn't do a consumer any good to have someone down the street to provide assistance if they don't know that they are there, right? And that's something that I think has been a real gap in the first couple couple years. So that's something that Enroll America um, actually developed a tool. Uh, It's called the Get Covered Connector. um, And it's a consumer can plug in their zip code um, and not just find the list of assisters in their area, which is similar to a tool tool that exists at healthcare.gov, but they can actually schedule an appointment on Mm. the spot. And so say, plug in, you know, 43214, which is my hometown, Columbus, Ohio, uh, that zip code, you'll find I'm looking for Monday at 11 a.m. Here's an appointment, schedule it, I will get text and email reminders. And so you think about, just think about that from the consumer perspective, the difference from if they found that zip code lookup tool in the first place, they got a list of people to call. And maybe it was eight, you know, eight numbers down before someone had an available appointment tomorrow. This now sort of filters through that for them. And that's the kind of thing that, again, speaks to looking at what do consumers need, what are the barriers they face, what supports them overcoming those barriers, and how can we now implement programs that address that. I have to say, based on how effective this campaign has been and also just how intuitive it is that, of course, a consumer wants to be able to log on, put put in their zip code, and find an available appointment, there are a lot of medical groups who would love to have you do their (laughs) online scheduling. Well, well, and Rivka, with that in mind, you and I work with a lot of healthcare providers. I work with hospitals and health system leaders. Rivka, you work with medical group executives. Um, And from your perspective, what should they be doing from here through the end of open enrollment? What's their role? 
Well, providers play a, a critical role. I mean, first of all, when you look at research and shows, you know, trusted voices are still very important in this effort to deliver messages to the uninsured. And providers always rank very, very high in terms of one of those trusted voices. Um, you know, I think when I, you know, I do a lot of work and Roll America has done a lot of work with hospitals and our program with specifically those sorts of partnerships has evolved a lot. And a couple of things I'd say is, first of all, um, sometimes I'll talk to hospitals and um, some of them are doing great work by they have certified application counselors. You know, they've done the work to sort of train their staff and, and have folks available to provide appointments in the hospital. And that is a great first step. But what I often say to folks is, that's nice, but when you really think about a patient who's coming into the ER or coming into a doctor's appointment, that's usually not the moment of their day that they want that they say, "You know what? I am going to sit down and for, you know, 30 minutes or 45 minutes enroll in health coverage." And so that's what you have to do is still have a program that then connects those consumers, finds those patients going about their day-to-day -day life and connects them with with that in-person assistance. And I think that's often the missing piece and, and an area that we at Enroll America have been able to develop partnerships where we can actually drive consumers to your hospital uh, at a time that is convenient to them. So doing Saturday afternoon appointments, not I came in, you know, to the ER and broke my arm and you consider, you think that that's the moment a, a consumer is going to enroll. And that's even if a hospital or health system isn't a navigator or, or signed up formally to, to assist? Well, I, I do think signing up formally to assist is the first step. But I think sometimes I'll, I will talk to, you know, heads of hospitals who will say, oh, yeah, we got that program covered. We have our assisters, right? It's all done. You know, this working with Enroll America would be duplicative. And I, I think that there's a lot of work beyond that, um, that that Enroll America can provide. And we've developed some really great partnerships with hospitals to make sure that your investment in making sure you have those CICs is actually resulting in enrollments and getting the patients that you want to see enrolled in coverage actually enrolled. You've been able to share data with hospitals and health systems that their efforts to get patients enrolled actually has meaningful impact, not just for the system, which is obviously the first priority, but also for that individual organization. Yeah, um, we have. So there's lots of different aspects of work that we've done to providing training for, um, for staff and employees. Um, but one example is actually working with specific systems to target some of their multi-encounter patients mm. that are actually, you know, the actual individuals that they really want to make sure are enrolled in coverage. And that's an ability that through, you know, you know, a, a business associates agreement, we can share information back and forth. So again, that goes back to the point of by using some of these tactics we've developed, we can we can find those consumers, you know, reach out to them in in a moment that is convenient to them and make sure they're and drive them to using the connector, you know, an, an available appointment or, you know, using our plan explorer to enroll online. And again, that's an example of really, I think, working with hospitals in a way that benefits the consumer and also um, speaks not just to sort of the, the shared mission we have of supporting, uh, you know, their patients, but also actually helps their bottom line in a really significant way. So Anne, I, I want to get to a different point and not to put the cart in front of the horse, but there's been a lot of focus on expanding coverage. This is something we I think we've talked a little bit about before. The need to make sure that there's access after that coverage and that the plans that folks are signing up for are comprehensive and that there are physicians included in the plan who will be able to treat that patient. How much does Enroll America focus on that at this point? The kind of downstream effect of getting a plan and making sure that it is 
comprehensive enough for that patient's needs? Um, well, first, a couple things. I would say that at the moment where when a consumer is selecting their plan, it is important to give them as much information as possible to make sure that the, the, the providers that they see are covered, because that is an important point to make sure that consumers retain their coverage, right? They're happy with their plan. They feel like they're getting value out of the premium they're paying each year. So that is part of the plan explorer, that, that tool that I described that is helping consumers, I think, look not just at the premium, but looking at a more complete picture. Um, I will also say, though, that, you know, at Enroll America, we, we don't try to do it all. Uh, and I think that's actually been one of our strengths is to say our piece of this puzzle that the healthcare system is enormously complex and there are so many layers to making sure that the Affordable Care Act is successful. Um, Enroll America is trying to focus on one really important piece of that and do it well, and that is getting not just a big number of people, but but a good mix of people into the system. And, uh, and, and to make sure they retain their coverage, we want to make sure they have a plan that they're happy with. But at this point, we don't do a ton sort of after that point. We do a little bit of health insurance literacy, a little bit of, you know, staying in touch to make sure they renew their coverage. Um, but I think that there's a lot of work to be done still that that relies with providers, that relies with the the multitude of fabulous organizations in the healthcare sector that that have a role to play as well. And that was great. Will you stick around and do electives with us? Sure, I'd be happy to. Then let's get into them. The electives, the thing that we have been saving to talk with you about on our podcast. All right, Rivka, are you ready? I'm ready, as always. So my elective this week is from the publication Hospitals and Health Networks, which ran a story that recapped a keynote address that Don Berwick gave at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, where he is a senior fellow. And I found the comments, at least the comments as they were recounted in HHN, really interesting. Um, First, he said basically that modern American healthcare to date has had two big chapters, two eras. The first being sort of physician-centric, relationship-oriented, physician captaining a care team, patient taking doctor's observations and assessments as gold. And that's era one. Second era is the one he says we're in now, where patients are more active, maybe more discerning consumers, certainly because they have more skin in the game, but also where clinicians and provider organizations are being held accountable for a large and growing set of performance metrics where transparency is at a record high and where performance risk is shared more broadly, specifically with providers than it ever has been. And then he said he basically thinks that this era is coming to an end or that we're seeing the limits of the efficacy of this era. Um, here is a quote from him. He said, one story, and he was he started his keynote by telling two different stories of two different patients and uh, one really positive story, one from a friend of his, really negative. He said, one of these stories is about connecting, about relating, about growing together. The other is about processing, next patient, next patient, next patient. And we're caught in that space where the tension, I think, between the beauty of a real healing relationship between patient and provider and the beast of care as production. I don't know how we got here, but I do know that the tension is clearly unbearable. And if we're not careful, it can break us. And this was his segue into nine steps that he offered that the healthcare industry needs to take to enter what this third era that he is sort of hearken, hearkening, is that a word? The third era that he's calling for, the, the moral era, which is what he calls it. And I want to share a couple of those steps. The first one, he says, is to stop excessive measurement. He says transparency is important, but we are measuring too much, and uh, measurements or metrics have diminishing returns the the more they grow, and he proposed that we should shrink the number of metrics by half. Hmm. 
Second was abandoned complex incentives. This is something near and dear to me working with medical group executives. It's the same concept, right? He says, we need incentives, but when the rules of the game are so complex, it's basically impossible to execute and to win that game uh, or to play it well. And so that incentive becomes worthless if it's not simple and understandable. And then the third one that I wanted to highlight is he says we have to embrace transparency. And this one I want to quote directly. He says, the right rule is really clear to me. Anything we know about our work, anything we know about our work, the people and communities we serve can know too, without delay, without cost or smoke screens. What we know, they know, period. So I think there's room for debate. I think they're all maybe a little bit controversial, but I think it's it's great to hear him sort of pushing the envelope from a slightly different platform than the one he had previously, and I found the article really interesting. It's, it's Berwick Unleashed. Now it that is. He's out of, out of is. the political game. Indeed. Rob, what do you have? Well, before I talk about my article, I actually want to start with a question again this week. Are you guys huggers? It Obviously. feels like personal information. <laughs> Dan, I, I know the answer is no for you. No, I, well, yeah, I'm, not, hugger. I'm not hugging everybody, but I hug the people that are close to me. Yes, of course I'm a hugger. I have a one-year-old daughter. That's true. And I know we've just met, but would you say you're a hugger? I'd say I'm I'm sort of on the edge. I'm not the touchy-feeliest, but... You're not soliciting for a hug on the podcast, <laughs> No, I'm, 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 I'm not. And, and Dan, I, I'm with you. I, I hug those I'm close with, not random strangers. Um, but an article caught my eye last week, and it's called Why We Hug. Uh, it was on the Huffington Post, and it was written by actually one of my former colleagues here at the advisory board. Um, then named Katie Owen. She is now married and is uh, Katie Owen Allman. Um, and she is the only one of my former colleagues who has left the advisory board and joined the ministry. So she's now the Presbyterian campus minister at Duke University. And she wrote a really interesting article about why they end every one of their services with hugs. She explains that at the end of the service, when they pass the piece, it's not a handshake. It's not a fist bump. It is a full on hug. Um, and she explains that this is somewhat controversial um, and in that uh, a lot of ministries, they've moved away from hugs for child protection reasons and to be mindful of folks who may be uh, victims of assault. And she argues that while those are really, really important, hugs and embrace are also really important. Uh, and she cites research about how hugging makes you happier about how hugging can be good for your physical health. She talks about doing missionary work in, in Haiti. Uh, and the nuns there ask them to, when they visit an orphanage, to hug and embrace the babies. Mm. Um, so Katie writes that we need to learn to embrace the embrace. So I think that's interesting uh, and a helpful reminder as we head into the holiday season. She does warn us, though, ask before you hug someone, especially a stranger. I think that's really good advice. Um, but maybe we'll all hug a little bit more our loved ones after asking this holiday season. I thought season. you were going to say hug right after no, this I, podcast I, and <laughs> the look of abject fear in everyone's eyes. <laughs> Pretty great. When I, was in my, when I was in my early 20s, I had a friend who told me that you need like seven touches a day to be happy which I, I don't know if that's true or not. I've never seen the scientific literature, but that did stick with me a little bit. And, and I know that those days when you go through or weeks when you're not seeing anyone who's close to you or, or getting the pat on the back or the hug, you, it does feel a little lonely. Do you want a hug, Dan? <laughs> we may need you, to have an embrace. You, you, you can show. wait and decide if my elective is as fun and, and worthy as Rob's. But first, Anne. Well, I'm going to go in a slightly different direction um, and uh, tell you a little bit about a trip I just had to North Carolina a couple weeks ago. Um, 
where uh, North Carolina, you know, is is a leader in enrollment. Um, you know, is is you know, people often ask me what's going on in North Carolina that's so powerful, and I often tell them about the coalition that exists there, which is one of the the strongest, I believe, in the country. Just a lot of groups coming together, rolling up their sleeves, and doing what needs to get done. Um, but one of my stops along the way was this small town called Lumberton, which is in. Southern North Carolina. Um, I've been there. You have. So, you know, driving down 95, it's it's sort of right there. It's actually right before you hit South Carolina. Rob has been everywhere. And <laughs> he, he has traveled to travel. every hospital board meeting in the <laughs> eastern seaboard. So have you been to the hospital, local hospital? There? I have met healthcare providers in Lumberton. Okay. All right. Um, well, for others who might not have made the connection yet, if you were driving south on 95, right before you hit South Carolina... Like out of nowhere, will pop up this thing called South of the Border, which is like this like Mexican style resort. It's like a crazy thing. Well, Lumberton is like 15 minutes north of there. Okay, so like right before you hit South Carolina, and um, and and very pretty rural. Um, very poor, um, one of actually the poorest counties in the country. Um, but they have actually pretty strong enrollment numbers. And when you look at a lot of the sort of stats about them, they're, the, they're some of the things that, that make it really hard to see successful enrollment. You know, of the about 500,000 enrollments in North Carolina, 10,000 have been in the Lumberton area, which sounds small, but when you actually look at the percentage of people who are eligible to enroll, it's actually a pretty high number. So like, what's the secret in Lumberton? This is what I wanted to see. And what was pretty cool to see was it is, I can tell you, the secret in Lumberton is this woman named Vanessa Abernathy, who is this incredible woman who um, who essentially decided in 2013, she volunteers. She doesn't even work for an organization. She volunteers with Enroll America and decided in 2013, I really want to get involved. And so she basically went around. She got the, the local hospital involved. I was at, we were at the hospital. The VP came and was telling me how he remembered the first time he met Vanessa. She got the faith organization involved. She got the you know, social service organizations. And there's this really powerful coalition that is not the most common in a rural area like that, that she basically has single-handedly organized together. Mm. And as I was leaving that night and, you know, talking to Vanessa and hearing others talk about her, I said, hey, Vanessa, you know, I, I have to drive to Columbia tonight. You know, how far of a drive is that? And she said, I have no idea. I, I just moved here. And I, what? you know, you Whoa. thought this must be a woman who's lived here her entire life, knows everybody. No, she moved to Lumberton, North Carolina in early 2013, wanted to get involved, and has basically become the dynamo oh that goodness. is organizing the entire entire enrollment coalition. It sounds like she has a future in organizing. It's, she is like the, the queen of organizing. And of course, that is what made me so happy about it. And the reason I want to share this one, I just, you know, I am I am an organizer my, my, myself. I am a big believer in this thing that people always roll their eyes about, which is like the power of one person. Um, but she demonstrated that to me in a way that is sort of unlike anything I've ever seen. And often when I am talking to reporters or, you know, you sort of hear pundits or, you know, policymakers talking about the Affordable Care Act and sort of, you know, why don't we feel the same energy around the ACA and marketplace as we did in the first year? But they don't know. They don't know Vanessa, and they don't know that there are people like her 
that those are the sorts of things you can't really feel from a distance. But when you are in that room, there is nothing more powerful. And to me, that's a lot of the story of what's happening community by community. This is now being implemented on the local level. And there are people like Vanessa who are so passionate and want to make a difference, and they're making it happen. And and that matters a lot more than some of the things we, we talk about here in Washington, D.C. Dan, you drew the short stick going after that elective. <laughs> I kind of feel like I should mail my elective in and just like go <laughs> south of the border. Like, just we forget can all do it. it together. You can just go right to the credits. <laughs> it will be very, very hard to follow. And so I'm not even going to attempt to measure up to that. I did want to go in a slightly different direction. Thank God. A much more frivolous one. So I got a press release this morning. <laughs> Sorry, that's very hard to follow. That was wonderful. That was yeah, great. That oh, was thanks. great. Yeah, thanks for showing I'm me up on I my own podcast. <laughs> I got a press release this morning from Sacred Heart Hospital in Wisconsin. Uh, the most popular baby names from 2015. <laughs> this is probably not even worth it. You know what? Well, you have to finish it. No, I'm so no. I, yeah. Come on, you have to do one. It's the rules. So I got a press release this morning from Sacred Heart Hospital in Wisconsin with their list of the most popular baby names at their facility in 2015. The most popular name for boys born in that hospital in 2015 Jackson, with an X, J-A-X-O-N. And at their sister hospital, the most popular name for boys, Jackson, with a C-K, or Jackson, with an X. And that jogged something. I went back and found a press release from a few weeks ago, Unity Point Health in in Iowa, their Mm -hmm. St. Luke's Hospital. The most popular name, Jackson, with an X. Uh, So then I looked it up on, on Baby Center, where you can track data from around the country and chart names over time. Jackson has exploded in popularity over the past few years. The number one name for boys in 2015 is Jackson. Not not with the X, but with the the CK or or alternate spellings. Now, I'm I'm fascinated by baby names. I feel like this tells us something about our society. I'm just not sure what. And we we know that there is a signaling effect to the name that you can give a child. Is the name after a popular Jackson? Is it an American Idol or something? I have no idea. Okay. So for this and all of your other questions about why baby names become popular over time, you must listen to Mike Pesca of The Gist doing his little riff. It was a spiel that he did at the end of his podcast a couple of weeks ago about some press release that Baby Center put out saying that there was, uh, I don't know, 25% increase in the prevalence of specific names. And he did school them because their 25% increase was something like an increase of two per million to, you know, three per million. Or that's a bad example. Four per million to five per, per million, which is tiny. It's like you know, 20 more people named the particular name. But he gives a couple of examples of why names become more popular. TV shows, movies, sure. et cetera. I mean, I, I know that like the Game of Thrones names have percolated down and some of the characters on that show, now there are babies being named after that. And ESPN is apparently a name that some parents give their kids. Shaquille, which when we were all growing up was not a common name, but I've seen 10 different athletes this past year in college sports named Shaquille after Shaquille O'Neal. They're actually saying Instagram filter yes, names that's the are one now popular of. names for children. It's true. That's right. Are, are you considering an Instagram filter no. name for future children? Well, you know, I am actually pregnant. So, <laughs> oh, oh, so this is a timely conversation. But I hope you're no. not breaking it on our podcast. <laughs> no. Well, maybe, yes, probably to some of your listeners, but not to like my family. <laughs> um, so, but no, I, I read this recently that Instagram yes. filters are like becoming popular. I mean, not like 
ex-pro, but like no, some but of like the Jayden other names or that are. what was that's actually that was why yeah. Pasca riffed about it because he got the press release right. about the Instagram. Crazy. Filters. And we'll wrap the show on that note. Thanks to our producer today, Bronson R. Curry, our interns, Emma Kellum and Ray Woods. If you have feedback, suggestions, or questions for our call-in show, you can email us at podcast at advisory.com. For links on anything that we talked about, including links to Enroll America, you can visit advisory.com slash podcast. You can find us and subscribe on iTunes. And we'll talk with you again next week.